advertisement has so much uh, relevance to how we live as a society. So getting into the world of the Old Testament is relatively easier for us Asians, I think. One, because the culture reflected in the Old Testament is closer to us than perhaps to the to Westerners, I think. And secondly, because the problems that are addressed in the Old Testament are still strangely the problems that we still face in South Asia or in the majority world. So this portion of the Bible can speak so powerfully, so meaningfully to our society. But it has to be brought to the people with examples from our society so that they can feel the punch of it, right? My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Sydney learn from Christians in Sao Paulo? How can church leaders in Mongolia equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as Global Ambassador and Ministry Director for Langham. On this episode of On Mission, Chris introduces us to Angukali Rodaka, an emerging Old Testament scholar from India who recently received her PhD with support from Langham. As a female theological leader, Angu is a pioneering voice for the church in South Asia. She recently co-edited Exploring the Old Testament in Asia, the first evangelical Old Testament textbook written both from and for an Asian cultural context. In her conversation with Chris, Angu shares about her roots in Nagaland, a mountainous state in the far northeast corner of India where Christianity is the majority religion. She also discusses how reading the Old Testament through a South Asian lens can help readers feel closer to a deeply relevant, yet often misunderstood, part of the Bible. I hope you enjoy their enriching conversation. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and welcome back if you're a regular listener to these podcasts. Today, we're heading back to India, where we've been before. But this time, we're going to a part of India that many people may not have particularly heard of. It's up in the far northeastern corner. It's the state of Nagaland, and that's where my guest comes from. Her name is Angu Rotakar. So, welcome to you, Angu. Hello, my name is Angu. I'm from Nagaland, which is a state in northeast India. And my husband and I live in Bangalore at the moment, which is a city in South India. Um, I'm currently a full-time writer. Uh, I've been teaching for, for 10 years in seminaries, but when the pandemic hit, I wanted to take some time off and uh, write full-time. So I've been doing that for about nearly two years now. Yeah. 
But apart from my writing work, I also am involved in my local church where I serve as a member of the executive committee. Um, I would say it's quite different from the academic work that I do. And I truly enjoy this side of ministry as well. Uh, I get to see what and how people are actually thinking, uh, which sometimes is quite different from what I might assume. So I get to see and understand what their concerns are, what provokes them uh, or what moves them. And when I write, I, I try to think about them. Is this something they want to know? Is this something they need to know? If I write it this way, will they understand it? So I think these two aspects of my ministry feed into each other, and um, I'm quite happy at the moment there. That's, that's great to hear because some people are just pure academics um, and their work is very high-powered and possibly very valuable, but it never actually reaches the church. And yeah. some people write for the church, but it doesn't have much depth or background. So mm -hmm. it sounds like you're trying to bridge both the world of what one might call ordinary Christian believers and disciples in the church and the uh, higher levels of, of theological study. Would, would that be a good way of putting it? Yes, I think so. I think that I, I am privileged to be in such an intersection where I'm able to connect with both sides. So I think it's a privilege, yeah. Mm. Angu, obviously uh, you're a woman in the world of theology and often the world of theology and writing is a very male area. But not only are, are you a, a woman scholar, a Langham scholar in fact, because you did your PhD uh, through the Langham Scholar Program, but you were mentored and supervised by another female Langham scholar, uh, Havila Dharamraj, whom we've had on this podcast in the past. Tell us a bit about that and uh, what your experience was as working as a, a woman scholar, under a woman scholar, in a country where a lot of theology and a lot of church leadership is male. So very early on in my theological education journey, I realized that I want to be, I want to specialize in Old Testament. And so, um, so when the time came for me to choose, there was no other, there was no second option. I was just going to study Old Testament. And God was gracious and I got admitted into the Old Testament department. So actually when I was being interviewed for the admission into Old Testament department, Havila was, Dr. Havila was one of the interviewers. And she said, she asked me a question, like, if you are admitted into the Old Testament department, you'll be the only woman in the class. Are you okay with that? And I think she was trying to assess how interested I actually was in pursuing Old Testament, like that I'm to make sure that as a young person, I'm not just floating around because my friends are, you know, going there. So I remember thinking uh, in my head, I, I, didn't, I didn't say that out loud to her, but I remember thinking that you are the only woman faculty, uh, you are the only woman in the faculty, so you are okay, so I'm sure I'll be okay. That's what I was thinking. And of course, I didn't say it out loud at that point in, during the interview because, you know, I didn't want to risk my chances of admission getting admitted. Mm -hmm. But later on, uh, I did, after I got the admission, I did tell her about this thought that I had and we, we, we had a good laugh about it. So mm -hmm. yeah, Dr. Havila has been my professor for many years and she was also my PhD supervisor. So I think I can say that I have interacted with her quite a bit. Um, like I said, as a woman, she was there the only woman faculty in, in the team. So Havila being there in the Old Testament department and being in the faculty as the only woman made me feel like it was okay to, to pursue Old Testament, even though I was the only woman in the class. Mm. So over the years, she encouraged me to explore my teaching and writing skills. So for instance, when I was writing my uh, MTH thesis, which was way back in 2010, 
she was presenting a paper in an annual consultation and she proposed that i write i co-write the paper with her since mm. her topic you know for the paper and my thesis subject were related i mean i think it's just wonderful that for our listeners to realize that I'm talking to a Langham scholar of a Langham scholar, in a sense, second generation um, from yeah. of the program, second which generation. yeah, which is beautiful and um, and it's it's so good to see that. I think John Stott would have been very pleased to see the sort of the long term fruit of uh, of the vision of the scholars. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, about where you are right now. As I'm talking to you, you were telling me you're at your parents' home in Nagaland, even though your job is actually in the south of India, down in Bangalore. Um, now, Nagaland is a, a place which, sadly, when my wife and I lived in India, we were not able to visit because of the political situation. I much regretted that. But for people who may not have heard of it, it's it's right up in the top right-hand corner, the far northeast of India. In fact, in many ways, it's closer to Myanmar and Bangladesh than, than to the rest of India. Um, and it has a, an incredible varied history, a state of about two million, mm-hmm. I think, um, right about. Um, about that. But looking at the map, it's a, just a little bit bigger than my home country of Northern Ireland uh, and a little bit smaller than Wales. Mm-hmm. So it's not a big place as one of the 29 states of India, but it has a very colorful history. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your homeland of uh, Nagaland there? Right. Uh, so I was born in Nagaland, and like Chris has said, it's a very it's a small state. It's a state in the northeastern part of India, so it's in uh, on our right hand side corner if you look at the map map of India. So as a people, uh, we are called Nagas collectively, and we are a collective of about seventeen major tribes with other sub tribes, and each with their own distinctive languages and cultures. So we th- we have things in common, but we are not as homogeneous as well. So that's there. But what may interest our listeners is that the Nagas are more than 90% Christians. Uh, we were first reached by the American Baptist missionary Edward Clark and his wife and an evangelist from a neighboring state. And Clark was able to baptize the first nine Naga converts in November 1872. So that's like 150 years ago. Yeah, and so from then on, there has been no looking back in terms of percentages, in terms of numbers. We are now more than 90% Christian. So in Nagaland, if if it's a Sunday, you will hear church bells going off and uh, the place will look have a deserted look because no businesses are conducted on Sundays. Yeah, so it's, it's bad. Uh, local churches in Nagaland are also self-reliant because... Uh, People tie it religiously and give generously to missions. So most Baptist churches have a mission uh, department which undertakes the, uh, to spread the gospel to the unreached, so to say. So Naga churches currently send missionaries to various states in India and to neighboring countries like Bhutan, Nepal, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, China. And I also know some Naga missionaries who were in the African continent, like in Sudan and places like that. So yes, um, if you come to Nagaland, you will feel like it's a different country. It's a, it's like a bubble. It feels like we are isolated or insulated, actually, from all the religious difficulties that Christians in other parts of India face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm right now here in Nagaland, and I feel like, yeah, there's no persecution going on. I mean, I, I feel very, very safe as a Christian, mm-hmm. which sometimes is not the case when you are uh, in other parts of India. So it's, it's like a very... Uh, 
nice small bubble, so to say. But yes, we have our own problems. Mm. Um, politically, there is a long-standing freedom movement going on in Nagaland. So, for that reason, there is a very strange and I would say uh, an unsavory mix of politics, gun violence, and Christianity. So that's mm. uh, that's one thing that is really really um, eating mm. up in the eating up the society. I would say uh, the other mm. thing is that. Christianity is 150 years. We are very happy and proud about it. But also, um, I think we lack discipleship. Mm. That's something. So we have, in name, we have become Christian. Our culture, in so many ways, reflect our Christian uh, beliefs. But uh, discipleship is so much lacking that uh, that is one of the very very corrupt states mm. uh, in India, which. It's very sad and ironic because, mm. as Christians, like how can you be the be one of those very corrupt states? But yes, mm. it is. But I think so, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd certainly love to talk a bit more about that in a moment. But I, I think it's just, I think it may just be surprising for people to realize that because when most people think of India, they think of a Hindu country, they think of a country where we know that many Christians are st- struggling because of the current political realities, both Christians and Muslims. Uh, in a Hindu-dominated country. So to hear that there is a whole state, in fact, more than one whole state in the northeast of India, which are predominantly Christian uh, because of the work of Christian missionaries of um, of the 19th century, may come as a surprise. And uh, just a, an interesting fact to, to take on board that there is a part of India which is substantially Christian. One of the other states which is which has a big population of Christians are down in the south, in Kerala, where we have, in terms of numbers, they have the largest Christian population in India. We have, <laughs> the percentages are the highest in, in, in Nagaland, but Kerala has the highest, uh, highest in, is the highest in terms of uh, how many Christians there actually are in numbers. They are a big state. Um, so their Christianity is, is even older because um, they trace back their roots to uh, the, Thomas, the Apostle Thomas. Mm-hmm. So, Apostle Thomas is said to have come according to the tradition. He came to Kerala, and that's that's why they are called Martoma. They they have uh, their roots going back to the Apostle Thomas. So that is one place where Christianity is really concentrated. Uh, I think one of the reasons why, even though Christianity has had such old roots in India, it didn't really spread out. Is one of the reasons is also because um, many of the Christians who Many of the people who converted early were also uh, Hindus, and they, they they have the caste system. And so, because of the caste divide, uh, they still didn't want to leave their caste and the, um, the culture and the customs behind. And so, it was difficult for uh, for the church to really become the kind of church that we think should be. And so, there was still that caste divide. So there's no reason for you know people to be attracted to that uh, to that kind of system if you are still going to be uh, to be emphasizing on the caste, why why would somebody who is from a lower caste come and sit there? So there were there there are churches that uh, that that were for the upper caste. The church was divided into you know this side this caste will sit that side that caste will sit. So that I think our failure in in terms Christianity's failure I guess uh, in India is because we were unable to break those barriers. Yeah. Mm. But you're saying that that is predominantly true of the churches in 
what one might call mainland India or southern India. That is, yeah, in the very southern tip of India. Yeah, but the caste issue wouldn't be the case in Nagaland, would it? Because that wasn't so much a caste society as a tribal society. It's a tribal society, yes. Yes, so the potential would still be there for divisions within the church. Do, do you see anything comparable to the caste divisions in the southern part of the country to tribal divisions in, in Nagaland in that part of the country at all? Oh, yeah, we have, uh, so like I said, we have uh, 17 major tribes and there are other sub-tribes and we do have our languages. So even though we are all Christians, um, there is definitely like tribalism. So that that is that is definitely there. But we, I think, amongst, uh, amongst the Nagas, why it spreads so quickly is also because how the society is structured. We are st- structured in terms of family, clans, and tribes. Mm-hmm. So if your family becomes Christian, if one in your family becomes Christian, or if your father or your mother becomes Christian, it was so much easier for the whole family to convert. Mm-hmm. If your the village headman converted, it was so much easier for the rest of the village to convert. Mm-hmm. So because of that kind of system, I think it was easier for Christianity to penetrate amongst the Nagas. Mm-hmm. And why it wouldn't have really impacted the other parts of the world or other parts of India is also because uh, India has a very strong caste system. And in that caste system, uh, tribal people like us are outside the caste or in the very in the very lower sections of the caste. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really impress uh, people when uh, when we would have, if we would have ever brought it out at that time, it didn't really, it, it's mm-hmm. not really something to listen to. Uh, a higher caste person would not listen to you. So mm-hmm. I think that's the reason. But for now, things are better. People are going out and like I said, Missionaries are being sent out. So I think for now, things are maybe trying to, we are trying to move things forward. But in history, in the past, yeah, that was not really something that would have gone out of Nagaland. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because um, to hear that, for example, w- within the caste Hindu system, on the one hand, if you were to go or a Naga were to go to bear witness to Christ and you come from what's referred to as, you know, tribals or, or, or non-caste people, mm-hmm. you won't get a, a hearing. You're not listened to because, in a sense, you're not respected. Yeah. The opposite end of that spectrum is that uh, many Hindus regard Christianity as the Western foreign religion because right. from their point of view, it came from the, the British colonial era which in, a, in, a, in another sense is not quite true because, as you've rightly said, Christianity was there, has been there in Kerala since, well, mm-hmm. documented there since the right. second century and potentially right back to the Apostle Thomas. Right. So right. It's, a, it's a kind of opposite end problem, isn't it? Whether you come yes. from below or from above, uh, it can be difficult mm-hmm. for the gospel to find roots. Right, right. Mm. Right now, yes. Uh, also, I think uh, people like to play on... Uh, on the assumption that uh, Christianity is the colonizer's religion. But like I said, for us, Christianity came from the American Baptist missionary, mm-hmm. missionaries. And so they were, they were often actually um, on hostile terms because of how they wanted things to go about in, 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 in that area. So it, down there in the south, it's, it has very, very old roots. And in the northeastern side, it has roots, but it has it has more to do with uh, with the American missionaries rather than with the British colonizers. But yeah. you know, it's it's easier for people to just club them together and say that it's the colonizers' religion. Yeah. yeah. 
thinking of, uh, as you referred earlier to the fact that uh, the Naga churches now are sending cross-cultural missionaries, not just to other parts of India, but to other countries in the region and indeed into Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, this podcast is called On Mission, so we should be thinking about that. Um, can you tell me any any knowledge you have of where Naga missionaries are, to put it in human terms, doing well? Uh, where they're seeing fruit for their labors uh, and where they're being good instruments of the kingdom of God? Right. Um, so I definitely know that there uh, there is good work being done. Okay, first of all, within India, uh, we have a neighbor neighboring nation. Uh, we have a na- neighboring state. In Arunachal, we, the Nagas have a, a really good reach over there. Um, a lot of churches send their missionaries there because they it's, it's also a tribal area. So it's, I think, easier to communicate with them. So the missionaries in Arunachal, they're doing really well. Uh, there are missionaries in uh, in Punjab. They are also doing pretty well. Um, then the missionaries in Thailand, uh, there are quite a bit of missionaries in Thailand as well. Uh, they are also doing well. Let's, let's come back a bit to your uh, love for the Old Testament. Um, as you know, I also have a great love for the Old Testament and for all my life. And when, when my wife and I lived in India, um, we were teaching at, uh, at UBS up in Pune. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that one of the things that impressed me a lot was just how relevant some aspects of Old Testament teaching are for situations uh, which were surrounding us there in India. Thinks of mm-hmm. um, oppression, uh, poverty, um, right. caste violence, uh, oppression of women, mm. all sorts of things. And it, it seemed that some aspects of the Old Testament teaching against such things in the worship of Baal and so on are very relevant. I wonder whether that was any part of your own uh, attraction to studying the Old Testament and teaching it. Had it anything to do with its relevance to the social and cultural situations mm-hmm. in India? Right. Um, I think... My own interest in Old Testament came from uh, from basically uh, two things. One was my observation as I grew up. Like I grew up in a very Baptist church. And um, so I, I, I realized that I have, as I look back, I realized that I have never heard like a full sermon being preached on the Old Testament. So Old Testament, yes, Sunday school stories full of Old Testaments. Old Testament stories and when preachers preach, uh, Old Testament is used for illustrations or uh, like a proof text, but never a full sermon on the Old Testament. So I felt that Old Testament is like two thirds of the Bible and I'd never heard a proper full sermon on the Old Testament. Like, why is that? So that was intriguing to me. The other thing was that uh, during my studies, I felt that the Old Testament was uh, was very rich, uh, was was very layered. So you you read the Old Testament like a particular narrative as a story, and then you think that that's it. But then you peel the layer back, and there's another layer to it, and you can keep on peeling the same story and finding more and more meaning to it. So it was like an onion. So mm. so I felt like it was very interesting that way. So that made me feel like yeah, this is something that I want to do. But as I thought more about it, as I worked more uh, on the Old Testament, I felt that the Old Testament has so much uh, relevance to how we live as a society. So um, 
getting into the world of the Old Testament is relatively easier for us Asians, I think. Uh, one, because the culture reflected in the Old Testament is closer to us than perhaps to the to Westerners, I think. Uh, and secondly, because the problems that are addressed in the Old Testament are still strangely the problems that we still face in South Asia or in the majority world. So people living, people of God living amongst a polytheistic world. That's, that's the Israelites, but that's also the Asians. Uh, people who lived in a time of oppression, violence, uh, a time where poverty was rampant. That's the Israelites, but that's also us. And the prophets speak against the excesses of the wealthy people. They speak against their oppressive ways. Uh, they speak against corruption that's embedded in every corner of the society. Um, I, I, I think of Jeremiah who says that the temple has become a den of robbers. And like for me, it's easier for me to critique my own people. So I'll talk about, take an example from Nagaland. Uh, so we Nagas are all Christians. That means all the politicians, all the people in the government services, all the business people, they are all Christians, so to say. But our people, our politics, our, uh, the way we do go around doing our businesses is quite corrupt. And so Jeremiah's words that the church or the temple has become a den of robbers applies to us because Monday to Saturday, you are out there doing whatever you want. On Sunday, you come back as though the church, that, that, that little structure is going to protect you, as though that's a den uh, where the robbers come back for, for their own safety. So, so these kind of things are like so relevant. It's, it's in the Old Testament, but it's like speaking to my context. Mm -hmm. There's so much turmoil and pain in, in India, in South Asia, and the Old Testament has excellent resources mm -hmm. for us to vent our pain and also to derive, our, derive comfort from. Our culture says that, uh, our culture says that we cannot question God, we cannot complain, or we cannot cry too much. But there are, but mm. you have the book of Psalms, the book of Lamentations, the book of Job. Mm. They say that we can't question God and still love God. Our culture, and also our culture, Asian cultures are, can also be, can also go back to many, many centuries, can be traced back to many, many centuries. So we have a lot of wisdom sayings. Um, for example, um, like one of the sayings that, that I know of is that someone's thoughtfulness is the other person's burden. So it's basically saying that if you do some unsolicited things, even if you're trying to be helpful, the other person might feel burdened by it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so things like that, like we have there, so the book of Proverbs shows us that not all elements of one's culture are bad, that there is wisdom in all sayings, there are wisdom in the Proverbs and idioms that float around in the society, in our culture. And we can use them, we can derive lessons from them that we don't need to discard everything. So how important is the Old Testament? It is very important. It's so relevant. Um, I don't know how it's not relevant. And so this portion of the Bible can speak so powerfully, so meaningfully to our society, um, to our nation. And it has, but it has to be brought to the people with examples from our society so that they can... Uh, so to say, so that they can feel the punch of it, right? Yeah. So it, it needs to be, this this kind of Old Testament teaching needs to be brought uh, to the people in, in, in a form that they can recognize in, in, with, with all the force of our own culture behind it and talking, in, uh, speaking into, in, into our context and into our culture. Uh, so yeah, I feel, yeah. yeah the, so 
just summarising what you just said, that at least in three areas that you mentioned, and there would be more, but at least in three areas, the Old Testament is, is relevant. One, in, in the ethical fight against uh, oppression, corruption and evil. Uh, secondly, in the area of uh, the ability to lament and to protest to God and to ask questions to right. God. And thirdly, in the area of proverbial wisdom, uh, which is there in all cultures and and discerning what is of the image of God in a culture and what is contrary to the image of God. So lots of ways in which that is true. But then you, you just said that this needs to be brought into the context. And I noticed that one of the things that you've been very much involved with is um, contextual writing of biblical resources. For example, you were involved with the South Asia Bible Commentary and wrote uh, commentaries uh, on b- biblical books in that. Uh, you are working on the currently on the South Asia Study Bible. Um, and indeed, you are one of the editors of a book recently published by Langham called Exploring the Old Testament in Asia, Evangelical Perspectives, which you co-edited with Jerry Huang, uh, which I want to talk about a little bit later. But before we get to the specifics of that book, why do you think, given that there are so many resources out there. I mean, you know, there's loads of English commentaries all over the place uh, on the Bible. There's masses and masses of biblical theological resources. Why do you think it's important for there to be resources written within a particular context like your own? Uh, Why is that so important? Right. Um, So the South Asia Bible commentary that we are working on, uh, we are excited about that as well. so I'll limit my answer to the Indian context uh, rather than speaking about South Asia as a whole. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in India, we have many pastors, evangelists, church leaders, uh, grassroots level uh, leaders of the community who have no who have no resources. They don't have access to libraries, whether that library is digital or physical. They don't have resources to consult uh, when they are, say, preparing for a sermon or a Bible study or a home group. Uh, sharing. So many just preach from what they personally can glean from their reading of the scripture through their devotion times or their personal experiences. And I also have done that uh, before I started my theological studies. And these are invaluable and we sure don't want to lose that that personal touch, that personal uh, uh, distilling of what God tells you from your personal time. But we also need other resources to supplement their reading, uh, to supplement their understanding of what the scripture is saying. Uh, they need resources that would guide their reading so that they can avoid or at least minimize the chances of misinterpretation and, and personal biases. Um, so, for example, uh, the incident of Bathsheba waiting, uh, because of how our culture is, it's quite easy to say, ah, it's her fault. She shouldn't have been doing that. Um, but if you explain to if you explain that it was ritual bathing, and which we understand uh, in in Indian context, we understand that it's not a luxurious or sensual bath. It's it's a it's a ritual bathing, which happens quickly, which is doesn't um, yeah, which happens quickly. Or if you explain that she was bathing in her own courtyard, which we Indians know very well about, because many people have wells or water pumps in their courtyard, and many people take bath there. So it's not something that she was doing out of going out of the way to do something uh, or to seduce David. It's just something that she was doing normally. She was ritual bathing in her courtyard. 
then people will understand that it was really David who was in the wrong place. He should have been at war, not on the rooftop, right? And we also understand hierarchy. So when we point out how impossible it was for a woman who was uh, who was the wife of an employee of David to say to refuse David, to refuse the king, we understand that okay, right? She actually was in a very helpless position. And so then we then understand why God judged David and not Bathsheba, right? It was David who was judged for that. It was not Bathsheba. So this way, like if we bring our own cultural understanding to the text, our, the elements in our culture to the text, then we can address that kind of misunderstanding and biases. Also, some of the passages are quite opaque today to the readers because they are uh, referring to something that is culturally or historically rooted. Uh, in, in the Israelite culture maybe, and they and the readers have nothing in their culture or in their experience to understand those. So resources like the SASB, uh, South Asia Study Bible, shed light, sheds light on uh, on those elements using culturally relevant examples wherever we can, and we try to illuminate the word of God for them. It's like they experience a eureka moment, and then there is a very, uh, like, a, it's a delightful experience for them. So people feel that when you use their culture to explain certain things in the Bible, they feel closer to, to the world of the Bible. It helps them understand and helps them feel that, yeah, this is something that, that, that relates to me. And other times also, then other times there are cultural parallels, but the readers need help to see them. For example, the Old Testament talks a lot about high places. What are high places? And when, but when we say, oh, it's like the temples, how the temples are always located on the mountains, right? So people say, ah, so that, that's what it is. Mm. Or why was Baal so attractive for the Israelites? Why were they always running after the Israelites? After, after the Israelites were always running after Baal. Then we say that, well, that's a fertility god. And there was fertility uh, prostitution, temple prostitution related to it. We understand very quickly because we are a country that... that that is hugely dependent on agriculture and we know how important agriculture is. We know how important the fertility of the land is. We also have a tradition of temple prostitution in India, which is alive in some parts of the region. And so we, they understand, okay, that's what it is referring to. And so we can also tell them that, yes, that was so wrong for the Israelites to do that. And that is how wrong it is for, and it's still wrong even today. Mm -hmm. So we can then use that kind of examples to mm -hmm reinforce the lessons that the Old Testament tries to, uh, that, that the Old Testament has been trying to tell us. Yeah, yeah thank you. That, that resonates a bit with, because certainly when I was teaching Old Testament in India, I kept on feeling, you know, Baal, Baal is alive and well in India today. I mean, right. The, the, the fertility cults, the sexuality, the sexual gods uh, and uh, prostitution and temples and so on. Although I would want to say that um, idolatry is not something confined to places like India. There is all kinds of Western idolatry sure. as well, uh, which is why okay. perhaps some Western contextualized theology, all the, all theology is contextual, but uh, why some theologies written in the West need to pay more attention precisely to the kind of Western forms of idolatry, uh, while Indian scholars like yourself are paying attention to those which are in your right. culture. So it's it's a universal thing, but right. it's good to, it's good to know that that's what you are perceiving as mm -hmm. that that pastors and Christians need to have that kind of applied culturally relevant contextual right. understanding of, right. of of God's word, which is so important. Which which brings me to um, this book that I referred to earlier, uh, published by Langham just very recently, exploring the Old Testament in Asia. 
Evangelical Perspectives, edited by Jerry Huang and Angukali Rotoka. And what I loved about this is that obviously most books have endorsements, uh, people who say nice things about the book. Uh, And a lot of these endorsements are obviously by Asian Christian scholars, and that's good and right and appropriate. Uh, But there's one which I thought I would just quote here uh, from Daniel Block. Now, Daniel Mm -hmm. Block is a highly respected Old Testament scholar in the United States, a professor at Wheaton College. Um, And he writes this, and I'd just love our listeners to hear his, his commendation of this book. He says, this is the volume for which I've been looking for a very long time. It contains the finest collection of evangelical studies in Old Testament theology by Asians for Asians that I have encountered. Many of the individual essays are the best on the subject that I have read. And he goes on to say, if it were required reading in biblical theology and exegesis courses in Western institutions, we might awaken to the myopic and alien presuppositions that plague our readings of Scripture and recognize some unfortunate missiological and ecclesiological consequences for having exported those presuppositions abroad. Uh, And that is really quite high commendation, not only for the book itself, but for the potential of the book uh, to have an impact in the West, which I think is exactly what Langham Publishing, of course, is trying to do, which is to amplify the voice of majority world scholars like yourself. And if I could just say, by way of getting some further comment from you, you yourself, as well as editing the book, have contributed two chapters in it. Mm-hmm. One of them is on Old Testament narratives and history writing, in which you compare the, the nature of Old Testament history uh, with the uh, practice of historiography in the ancient Near East, but also with India. In other words, because India is a land of many stories, um, uh, great long epics and so on. And you have a, a chapter on that. But the one that I'm more interested in today is uh, chapter 10 called Exodus and Liberation, Naga nationalism and the people of God, in which you point out how uh, in the Naga nationalist movement after the Second World War, uh, when Nagas were seeking to have a kind of independent homeland and not to be part of the Indian Union, there is a huge amount of use of Old Testament imagery and Old Testament theology, including the Exodus story, including the Joshua conquest of the land and so on, uh, which, which, which is then feeding into the, the, the Naga Christian nationalism. Would you like to comment any, anything on that for us to help us understand a bit about that? What is the nature of what you've called Christian nationalism in its Naga form uh, and, what that might, and your critique of it in this book? and what that might have to say to other examples of Christian nationalism around the world. Right, right. Um, So Naga nationalism has been going on for quite a while. It's more than 75 years now. And I think initially um, it began with, uh, with it it began as a search for justice because uh, India was not like India as we know it now before the British uh, before the British came. So we were just small kingdoms fighting each other, and so in, there there is nothing to say that Nagaland or where the Nagas were were part of part of India. So that that's the claim that the that the so-called Naga nationalists uh, they would make. And so in Nagaland was never part of India, and so we want to be a separate state. 
So when the Britishers were about to leave India, there was an appeal to uh, to, to there was a Simon Commission formed, and we we appealed to to the Britishers to separate us from the Indian uh, Union before before they leave. But that didn't happen, and so after that they have been fighting. So initially, because there was a lot of disturbance, uh, there were uh, there there was a lot of atrocities committed on the Nagas by the Indian army by the so-called Indian army, and so. It began as a, as a quest for justice that when you see your people, when you see your brothers, your sisters, your neighbors being killed or your neighbors uh, suffering, I think it becomes, uh, it, it becomes an injustice to not say or do anything. So if from that perspective, I think they, people wanted to really uh, stand up for, their, uh, for the people, stand up for uh, just to be not killed, right? But now afterwards, like... Uh, it has become sort of very skewed with all the uh, with all the misinterpretations, I would say, uh, of of the Old Testament. Obviously, uh, liberation theology, which is uh, which is like an Asian uh, Asian brand of theo contextual theology, part part of the Asian brand of contextual theology, of course, uh, from Latin America, but then imported here, and so we have now began to explore I would say, I, I'm hoping that it's a misunderstanding or that they have no adequate training and that's why it is like that. But at the end of the day, it, it is a misrepresentation of what, misunderstanding of what the Old Testament says. So like I told, like I said earlier, since Nagas are a collective of uh, several tribes who worship the same God, who are a small uh, people under the dominion of a larger power, it becomes very easy to adopt the narrative of the of, of the Israelites because they were many tribes, a collective of many tribes worshiping the same God and under the under the Egyptian rule, so to say, like if you if you don't care about the timeline, you transpose back here and there and you think of it like that. And how God uh, liberated them, brought them out of uh, Egypt and gave them a land of their own. So then you start you start this rhetoric of saying that we are we are Israel. God has also called us to be a people, and God is going to give us this land. But I think where where we are really lacking is in understanding that one that we are not Israel. That promise of a land, that promise of uh, of of a, that that promise of land was was a one time thing to the Israelites. It cannot be directly imported to to our own experience, to our own context, and we cannot just say that, that that's us. That was a one-time promise. That was a one-time covenant that God made with the Israelites. We are in the new covenant, and I think that is very uh, conveniently left out because in the new covenant, nobody is getting a, a geographical piece of land uh, from from God. It, it, that's not happening. Uh, we are we are a people of the new covenant bought by the blood of Christ. And when we think about it from the New Testament perspective, um, violence has no place. There, there is no justification for violence. Um, I discuss in the book that, that Jesus was also living in a time like how we are living. They were, they were Jews uh, living under the Roman rule and there were uh, supposedly uh, freedom movements of, even from for them, that Jews, they thought that they, they can uh, bring, bring on the uh, coming of the Messiah, so they 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 were they were groups like that who wanted to have restored their their 
restore their um, the monarchy. Sorry, restore the monarchy by by forceful means. But Jesus never endorsed them. Jesus never said that that is how it's going to be. Instead, Jesus said that that my kingdom is not from here, and he meant it to the point where even if he died. That that that's that's what he's going to do. He's not he's not going to say, yeah, uh, we, we are Jews and we are supposed to have this land, and so let's go and fight the Romans. That that was not his idea. His kingdom at the end, he responded that his kingdom is not from here. If it were, then God would have sent angels and he would have an army. But no, it was not. So I think we are missing that that part of that part of the gospel. We are missing that part of the Bible. And if the rest of the world are ignoring the Old Testament, I think we Nagas are ignoring the New Testament, where mm. where God has clearly uh, Jesus, the way Jesus lived clearly shows that there is no place for uh, violence. And if what we are fighting for um, becomes a contradiction to our Christian identity, then we really need to reevaluate what we are fighting for. Um, and if what we are fighting for has value, then we don't need to be using Christianity as a crutch and trying to tell, you know, stir up the emotions of people by saying that we are the people of God and God has promised this land for us. I, I don't think that that's the way to go about it. Mm. So yeah. Christianity, violence and politics, for me, I, I really feel that that's, that's really a bad, bad mix. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. It's uh, it, um yeah, when Christianity gets used uh, for nationalistic ends, even ones that are based, in, as you said, in, in justice and the struggle for justice and liberation, it's so easy then to get distorted uh, into a kind of hegemonic sort of, we, we've got to be the winners, um, uh, and that then easily becomes violent. There's just the one other thing that I, I wanted to talk with you about, Angu, and that was uh, going back a little bit to our discussion earlier about the fact that Nagaland is 90% Christian, as you say, and yet, as you also say, and as, as Nagas will admit, is, is well, when we lived there, it was Nagas students who told us that India was the fifth most corrupt state in the Union. And so you have this ironic, puzzling fact. How can a land and a culture and a people be Christian in name and Christian in worship uh, and all of that aspect of culture. And yet um, the, the the culture somehow has not been transformed at a deep level in terms of, of integrity and honesty and so on. I'm wondering two things, uh, perhaps for your comment. One is, might it have anything to do with uh, what we were talking about earlier of the relevance of the Old Testament? In other words, is it because uh, Christians have never really had the kind of teaching that comes from the scriptures of Jesus, the scriptures of the Old Testament, with its hugely strong emphasis on things like justice, accountability, integrity, truthfulness, uh, and so on, and its condemnation mm -hmm. of the opposites? That's one possible explanation. In other words, the, 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 the kind of Christianity that was rooted there um, never had deep roots in two-thirds of the Bible, as you called it. But the other question I would ask is, might it have anything to do with the nature of the gospel as it was originally preached? In other words, what was it that the original Nagas were responding to in terms of the kind of evangelism and church planting and so on, which obviously took place very successfully uh, in the late 19th century, which transformed uh, the Naga tribes in in many ways. Um, 
but was it a kind of gospel which gave them, as it were, uh, a doorway to heaven and to this singing the songs of Zion and so on, without, um, as you put it, without the rigors of discipleship and the demands of actually taking up the cross and following Jesus uh, in the ways of ethical discipleship. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or comments on that. Right. Uh, thank you. So I think it's both. Uh, why I say that is because I'm not saying that the missionaries didn't teach us, but I think what we caught on to is mostly like heavenwards, looking up to heaven kind of thing, because so many of the songs that we have uh, in our own languages, the revival songs, not not the we also have all the church hymnals translated into our own languages, but there are also revival songs which were composed uh, by our own people and we've seen that. So many of them are very heavenward looking, like, like that's the place where we will go. If you don't respond now, you will miss out on that. So it's a very heavenward looking. It, it uh, emphasizes so much on the life after that perhaps we missed out on grasping how important it is to live in this life also as uh, kingdom citizens. Yeah, so we, I think we missed out on that. And so as a, uh, as a result of which, then it goes into your first reason that we have not been discipled properly. We didn't disciple ourselves properly. We didn't uh, go into the Old Testament. We didn't, uh, take, our faith didn't take root in that kind of a, uh, a gospel that, flows out in our, uh, in, into our everyday lives. So one of the things that I have always felt is that, uh, that I've grown up uh, as a person from Nagaland, grown up in churches in Nagaland. And I have, okay, this is like going to be sound like a very uh, bad, I'm going to be the, uh, the bad, the advocate for the, for the devil and say that uh, we haven't really, um, preach the gospel well. The preaching in our churches don't have very deep roots. That's one of the things that I've always felt that's one of the, it really, really needs to improve. And that's why resources are important. That's why contextual resources are important. Uh, so it goes back to, you know, like how, um, how what Langham is doing is important for, for, for people, for people for our regions as well. So the Old Testament has been neglected, yes, but even when the, when the New Testament is preached, that, that the rigor of studying the Bible deeply and bringing out the relevant information, that, that relevant um, punch, as, I, as I've been saying, the relevant punch has not been there. So people just sit there, yes, um, there are some good information, sometimes you learn good, something good, but, but are we really attacking the things that are eating up our society? Do we actually talk about corruption a lot in our churches no we don't even now like even this time uh, this christmas when i when i come here i was really really upset because um because uh, some of the churches have been uh inviting politicians to as chief guests uh they have been invited to say, say something in the church whereas those politicians are known to be corrupt but you invite them um as chief guests, they give, they donate money to your church. Then obviously, how are you going to critique them? Mm. You cannot take their money and critique them as well. So, so that places the church in a very disadvantageous position. And, and the church leaders, it's, it's not all. I'm not trying to criticize everyone, but the churches that I know of have done that. And it is really, really disappointing because 
the church needs, like I said, the church needs to be the prophet. You, you, you are not supposed to to go to be in bed with the uh, with the with the politicians. You are not supposed to join hands and work together uh, in into corruption. Like instead of the church leading them out, the church is going towards where the politicians are. And so these kind of things have been happening for a very very long time. Um, I don't know if it's a tradition in the West, but when there is say a golden jubilee of a church celebration, we will have. Politi we will invite politicians as chief guests. Like, why does that have to happen? It, it, it just, I, have, I don't have an answer. I mean, that, that's, that's stupid. Mm. But well, it happens. So instead so. of the church critiquing them, we are taking their money and we are just keeping quiet. And I think that needs to change. It is sad when the church gets into bed with corrupt politicians. Uh, it's, right. um, it's never a good, it never ends well. Um, thank you, Angu, for being so honest about all of that. I'm wondering whether, as we draw towards a close, one of the purposes of these podcasts is to enable our guests, like yourself, from Majority World Context, to say, what would you and Naga Christians in general want to say to the churches of the West? Um, in what ways do you think uh, you can be a blessing to us? In what ways can we learn? from uh, your experience and your context, in what ways might we be warned by it uh, or encouraged by it? Uh, just what would, you, what would you most want to say to us? Sure. Um, since the world is so much smaller now than it ever was, I don't know if there's anything new that I can tell you that you don't already know, but perhaps like more like a reminder that, that mission work in terms of reaching out to unreached people is still important. I hear or read a, quite a bit about people criticizing missionaries because they go into unreached, to unreached groups and they change their culture in the process of evangelization. So especially from an anthropological point of view, um, I understand the importance of preserving culture and that the complete transformation of cultures, uh, I think that that's disastrous, yes. But as someone whose people were reached 1, 000, uh, 150 years ago and whose culture was changed because of it, I still want to say with Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Could things have been done better by the missionaries? Maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But would I choose to preserve my culture and not ever know Christ? Absolutely not. So the answer is not less mission work. The answer is bet better sensitization during mission training. So yes, uh, even though people may say missionaries go out and destroy cultures, I, I think um, I, I think mission work is still important and it, it's still appreciated. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that every generation needs to be reached, not just every nation. So even though there are nations like like say as a, as a from a biblical perspective, we Nagas are also a nation in that sense, like a, a people group. We've been reached. But every generation needs to be re-reached again, like every generation needs to be reached anew. And many Western countries also have that Christian culture. Many of, uh, I think it's, it's supposed to, uh, many of you are Christians. I think you are not an unreached people group in that sense, but every generation also needs to be reached. So I think that's also another lesson that you can take from us because I think we are failing and that's why we are in such a corrupt state, uh, even as, as a state of Nagaland. Yes. 
and perhaps a lesson more like a cautionary tale that a mix of politics religion um, the mix of politics and christianity mix of politics and religion is 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 not a good mix the church should function like a prophet and critique the community the society and its rulers and the church is not trying should not try to become the king or the ruler the church should not be in bed with the politicians when the church leaders and the politicians they join hands i think the people they suffer so i think maybe those those three points yeah mm, thank you yes that's that's very helpful and very powerful so as you conclude uh, angu what's next for you and how can we pray for you All right um what's next for me is i i will be hopefully very quickly i will be start uh, i will start writing commentary on chronicles for the asia bible commentary series and there is also a monograph idea on the works but it's still in its initial stages of discussion so we'll see where it goes um but the monograph idea has to do with my culture like uh, i want to discuss um, the whole idea of nepotism and how it works in my culture and where it comes from and why it's good and why it's bad and uh but it's it's very very embedded in our culture of patronage and kingship kind of uh, it's related to to that kind of uh, idea from our culture so it's not something that i will say and nobody will say anything I, if i say it if i say it it will um, upset people i think but uh, as i said it's something that needs to be said it's something that's been in my heart and so i'm praying for wisdom i'm praying for uh, for it to come from a place of love rather than a place of judgment because i have grown up from this culture and i know that uh, it's not easy to look at our own culture and and be able to recognize that something is wrong because you've lived in it for so long that you are blind to your own flaws and so i think um in terms of prayer i think yes i need uh, wisdom and love and also boldness so i think that's that's where i'm going that's where my prayer is and yeah just praying for the maturity of the church in nagaland or in india in general because we have i mean and and still going on and on but we have churches churches are growing even though there is difficulty even though there are persecution uh, persecution we we still have church growing but we we need maturity uh, we need discipleship we need mm-hmm. the church to become indigenous mm-hmm. so yeah yes thank you and uh, as jesus did say go and make disciples not just evangelize he he wanted uh, disciples so the discipling and and every reached people including 150 years of being reached in right. Naga, in Nagaland still needs discipling uh, so the great commission isn't finished just because people mm-hmm. have been evangelized uh, yeah. which is so important and i think in terms of praying for you if you're going to write about something like nepotism uh, in your culture you're going to need courage uh, uh, to do that because you say there will there will be reaction and, and resistance like all the prophets found mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Well thank you for talking to us Angu let me pray for you and uh, yeah. and then we'll 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 finish Heavenly Father thank you for this conversation and thank you for the way that you have led and helped and trained and encouraged Angu thank you for the uh, input into her life that came through Havila Dharamraj for all that she is now doing for you and I pray indeed that you will make her an instrument of of your voice and uh, your prophetic wisdom and for biblical teaching 
there in Nagaland and also in her teaching down in in the south of India as well. And we pray for that land of Nagaland. We know that there are many fine believers there who are standing out with integrity and honesty in the midst of, of the corruption and so on. We pray for them. We pray for the Langham Preaching Movement in northeast India as well that is seeking to train and disciple uh, better biblical preachers for all the reasons that Angu has just shared with us. And we ask now that you will bless her remaining days with her family there in Nagaland and as she returns down to the south later. So we thank you for this conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's it for today's conversation. It's such a blessing to get to listen to two Old Testament scholars from different generations and different corners of the globe share new insights on God's Word with us. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. God bless.